0: Welcome to The Pastor's Cut. This week, we are joined by our South Loop location pastor, Rafe Chenery.
1: Yeah, we get to talk with him about Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23, holiday traditions, and Christian liberty when it comes to wearing your mask.
0: Great. Let's get started. I'm Hillary Murphy.
1: And I'm Trevor Lovell.
0: And this is The Pastor's Cut with Rafe Chenery. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Pastor's Cut.
2: Thanks for having me. Of
0: course. So it snowed today, and it's also Thanksgiving week. So that's making me wonder, Rafe, what is a holiday tradition you are most excited for this year?
2: Um, well, yeah, I feel like I uh, my family is full of tons and tons of weird traditions. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, you know, I think... One of the ones I always look forward to is getting new ornaments for all my kids. So that, that's somewhat of a normal one. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it tame for today. But, but <laughs> we, uh, we always get new ornaments for the kids. And actually, ever since I was a little kid, uh, my family always got a new ornament for each kid every year for the Christmas tree. And we would mark it like Rafe from 1994, Rafe from 1991 or something. And, then, uh, and Sarah's family did the same thing. And so Mm -hmm. my wife, Sarah, and so actually now I have all mine from growing up and Sarah has all hers. So our Christmas tree has literally like 35 years of like one ornament at a time coming on it. And now all the kids get their own ornaments on it as well. So it's kind of fun. Yeah, that's really cool. Mm
0: -hmm. I love that. My parents did the same thing and they told me I get to collect all of my years of ornaments next year.
2: It's a great moment. Oh, it's It's a big moment in life.
0: Yes. (laughs) I'm all grown up. (laughs) Yeah. What about you, Trevor?
2: Uh, For me, we, uh, this is
1: actually a tradition I was welcomed into uh, when I, when I got married, my wife, her family, they would watch the Grinch every Thanksgiving after like that Thanksgiving evening, they would watch the Grinch as like their entrance into the Christmas season and uh, the Jim Carrey version, of course. (laughs) So this year we were planning to go home and uh, we, we didn't, we're not able to do that. And so what we're gonna do instead is actually have a Grinch-a-thon where we're gonna read the book and then watch all three movies on Thanksgiving Day. And so maybe that's a little bit too much screen time than what the experts would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> but on that day it should be it should be fun.
2: Mm-hmm. That, yeah, I like that. Can I can I just comment on the Grinch for just a moment? Uh-huh. Now, Jim Carrey has a long history of funny movies. Uh-huh. I think that's his best acting is in that (laughs) movie. Yeah, it's incredible. He nailed that character and he's hysterical from start to finish. Like he should have got awards for the Grinch character. I know. I feel like it's a masterpiece. It Mm -hmm. it really is. (laughs) Yeah. um, Hillary, what about you?
0: This year, probably just really excited to get a Christmas tree, <laughs> which I do every year. And I know a lot of people like you, Trevor, have decided that this year you can put it up sooner than ever. But I always get a real tree, so I will be getting mine on Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. And just really excited to, to set it up this year and make the whole house feel festive.
2: Yeah, that is always a fun thing. Real Christmas tree or fake Christmas tree?
0: Always. Always. <laughs> mm.
2: Solid choice. Trevor? <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, well, we wanted to get the
1: tree up early this year. And so in order to get the tree up at the beginning of November, of November and have it last until Christmas, we had to go fake this year. Uh, okay. I had a brother. I grew up with a brother who had allergies. And so we always have a fake tree.
0: <laughs> well, that's sad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with it. Um, all right. All right. So, Rafe, you, you preached at Near North Lincoln Park. Central Region this past weekend on uh, the second half of Romans chapter 14. Could you give us a quick recap of your sermon?
2: Yeah. Um, so the big picture of the sermon was that uh, it's continuing, Trevor, from the sermon you preached last week. It's kind of in the same general theme. And uh, the point is that there are these divisions taking place within the church over kind of petty issues uh, issues of uh, opinions and traditions of how to honor the Lord and what celebrations to celebrate and and just the way people like to do things and two weeks ago the big idea well summarizing you had a better big idea than this but the, the big idea of the sermon was something like uh, just learn how to let the little stuff go in the, in the house of God don't let it just become this like ever cycling argument chamber actually just let stuff go and live at peace with one another and that's okay to do this week, uh, Paul basically takes it a step further, and he, he says, look, don't just let it go. Actively choose in your life to never do anything that would hinder harm or what the Bible says is destroy the work of God. So the idea is, is that not only should you not let the arguments happen, uh, but if you're behaving in, in, in some way causes someone else in the faith who has a different tradition, a different background than you do, uh, a different way of honoring God, if, if you jumping in and actually behaving in a certain way harms their conscience, then you shouldn't do it. So to explain a little bit, uh, the, the idea that they bring up in the Bible is about eating. So that was really the big uh, division in the church is that there were these people that came from a Jewish background who really felt it was important to not eat certain foods in accordance with the Old Testament laws, the dietary laws. But the the New Testament Christians, who were remembering Jesus' words with clarity, they, they realized, okay, wait, Jesus has freed us from the Old Testament dietary regulations. We can eat all food. But whenever they ate certain foods like pork in front of the people who had a conscience that was really like just saying, I really don't think I should be eating this. Even though they were free, they just felt in their heart like, I'm not comfortable with this. Whenever these stronger Christians were eating pork in front of them, it made these weaker Christians who had a heavy conscience about it just, like, crumble. And they, they, they started questioning their faith. They started getting in arguments. And so Paul's advice in this passage is to the stronger Christian. He's saying, look, you have freedom to eat anything, but choose to lay those freedoms down to serve other people. Don't demand your freedoms. Rather, give them up if it helps someone else get along. And so my big idea was basically do not destroy the works of God. Give up your freedoms and the things you could do uh, if they're going to harm someone else's conscience and choose to love them instead.
0: Thanks, Rafe. And I know in your sermon, you also use the term of the law of Christian liberty. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things I try to do when I preach is uh, connect us to the larger history of Christianity. Uh, We, you know, as modern Christians in the year 2020, we are on the shoulders of incredible men and women of faith who have really wrestled through these doctrines. Like we're not trying to figure this thing out as we go. Like it doesn't mean we can't have new opinions and new thoughts, of course. That's what the Christian faith is. You're you're listening to the Holy Spirit, you're reading the Bible, we have our own thoughts. But we're tied to a incredible historical record. And the doctrine of Christian liberty is a really important doctrine that's been really well developed over the years. And so here's, this is a quote I actually read part of it in the sermon. Uh, this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, just a really historic, important doctrine, uh, document for <clears throat> systematizing what it is we believe. On the topic of Christian liberty, they say, "...God alone is Lord of the Conscience." So your determination of what is right and wrong, what's morally acceptable. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and the commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or beside it in matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to obey true, is to betray true liberty of conscience. So that's a fancy way to say The Bible alone can dictate what is uh, what is right and what is wrong. So, it, and that is what commands your conscience. That's what uh, the, the language is binding your conscience. It's a more historic language. Your conscience of what you believe is right and wrong can only be bound by the Holy Spirit working the Word of God through you. So, let's just say, for example, if I came up to you, Hillary, and I said, "Hey, you know you uh, you need to." Uh, take uh, I'm trying to think of something I might say to you you need to take three days to uh, have a Thanksgiving celebration this fall (laughs) right this week you need need to make it a three day thing right this is how I've always practiced Thanksgiving it's the way to honor God I could try to maybe connect it to Old Testament uh, harvest festivals and I come to you and I say you if you really want to honor Jesus you need to take three full days to honor the Lord this Thanksgiving What you could do is you could say, Rafe, thanks for your opinion, (laughs) but my conscience is not bound by what you say. It's bound by the Word of God. And on that issue, in the particulars of what you're saying, I have Christian liberty, just like you do. I have liberty to do things in the way I'm going to do it, and you can't bind my conscience. Only the Word of God can. And that's so important because uh, I think in the church, what we normally do is we we develop, especially in our day of like opinion-saturated news and opinion-saturated internet, and you know, everything is such this like black and white bold opinion that everyone thinks they know the ins and the outs of every situation. We we elevate our opinions to and we communicate them in such a way that we're trying to bind the conscience of other believers. And that is not a healthy thing to do. The only thing that can bind our conscience because of our Christian liberty in the gospel, the only thing that can bind our conscience is the word of God. Um, and so that's the, the general framework of, of those doctrines. Trevor, I bet you got a whole bunch of stuff to add on that.
1: No, I mean, it's, I feel like are saying a similar thing, just using slightly different language or saying the same thing. But um, yeah, I appreciate how that's something that I feel like you do pretty consistently in your preaching is you'll go back uh, to, to big thinkers and to kind of central documents like, like the Westminster Confession. And uh, I remember your sermon on um, government, going back to Abraham Kuyper, who's like one of the, you know, one of the people who, in church history, who've done a lot of thought, and a lot of work, and a lot of writing around, um, you know, kind of the spheres of government and the sphere of government and how the church relates to it. And so, um, yeah, I, I just appreciate that as kind of a, a piece of of how you pastor and how you preach is going back and drawing on these big thinkers and, uh, and documents and pulling that into the way that you preach now today. Um, yeah. I think it brings a feeling of depth to, to what we're doing here that, you know, sometimes it can feel like we've got the the Bible, which is just a book that happens to be here, a uh, collection of books, and we're doing this church thing. And we miss that. There's, it can be easy to miss that there's been 2000 years of people interacting with this same collection and trying to live this same way of life and thinking and writing on it, and uh, it helps to know that we belong to something like that.
2: Yeah. yeah. It also makes just—it's it, it, almost like credibility too. Like I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> like I know you think I'm crazy, but like Kuiper said it as well. So if, if Kuiper says it, yeah, I, I you know I give me a little permission to maybe go there as well. <laughs> Uh, they, they have some credibility because their, uh, their work has withstood the ages. Yeah. Um,
1: I, I even remember this is, this is a tangent, but I remember C.S. Lewis saying at one point, um, like for every book that you read by someone who's alive, make sure you read two by people who are dead. Um, and he said that, uh, kind of going with the Ephesians four, Ephesians chapter four talks about like us as we grow in spiritual maturity, um, as the church is built up, we're not kind of swept by every kind of cunning wave of doctrine, by false teaching, even just by uh, kind of the cultural forces that would shape us into this or that way of life that's out of step with the gospel. And uh, he, he pointed to that practice as a way to avoid those kinds of things, because if you only read books that are written in your time period, then you're kind of just like stuck within that, that bubble in a sense. You're like, you're like the goldfish in the, you know, in the water who never gets into the sea. And there's something about drawing on the other other ages that can bring a better perspective, so.
2: Well, you are going down a rabbit trail, which I could enjoy for a very, very long time. uh, Because that is, I I 100% agree with that. And I would actually go a step further. And I know we're gonna get back to the sermon, so this will be quick. This will be a quick preaching rabbit trail. But you went there, Trevor, you went there. Um, I 100% agree with that. One of the things I've found is uh, there are good new books that get written. I don't want to say there's not good new books. There's there's plenty of wonderful literature that's getting put out there. I'm grateful for the, the access we have to so many good thinkers, right? I mean, there's more books published like this year than in like the entire 19th century combined, I feel like. <laughs> like, like there's a lot of literature out there. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, when you read the old writers— The the ability for them to take a single idea and and, and take that one idea very deep and connect it and and take you on a train of logic. I I just know for me, I find such um, wisdom in, in really going back to some of those old, especially the Puritans. I love reading the Puritans and even before them as well. Those Puritan thinkers who are piecing together doctrines at a level that's you got to go slow through it. You, like I, I can't browse through a Puritan writer. Like you got to be like, am I getting what they're saying? And then go back and. And I just find for me it it just forms my mind even better. Um, so that's not to throw new literature out. I read new books as well, but <laughs> I do like, I do like old books.
0: Rafe, what got cut this week?
2: Oh yes. Um, well, you know, I think. For this question, I, I'm going to go to an more of an application of Christian liberty, which I, I was wrestling with how many direct applications to put in, um, and I had a few. I cut them out, uh, and I, I know Trevor. In, I listened to your sermon the week prior, and uh, I know you had said it was difficult to come up with applications this week. Like how do we how do we modernize or what was the word you used? Trans, Trans, uh, Trans- transpose. Transpose. How do we transpose these to our modern day context? Um, And so I had a couple of examples. And and really what I'm going to share right now is walking you through the doctrine of Christian liberty in our modern day moment. And here's what I'm going to say before I even go here. What I'm about to say is going to make some people angry. And so just that's that's cool. Like, but I think that's actually the point. What Paul was saying in Romans 14 would have made a bunch of his listeners angry because he was pushing and he was clarifying this doctrine of Christian liberty over opinions and people who thought it was actually the right way would have been like, don't say that. Okay. Uh, So let's take the issue of masks and mask wearing, right? So we're in the middle of a, we're in the middle of COVID. Uh, We're in Chicago, we're in Illinois, we're spiking in the fall. Um, And Christian liberty, Uh, the question becomes, do I have Christian liberty to wear a mask or not wear a mask. Now, on this issue, right? the state, uh, where there's laws, let's say, it, let me go back a second. In the state of Illinois, I think right now, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, I think right now the law says if you're just walking down the street, you don't have to wear a mask. I think, I'm pretty sure that's what it says. If you're outside, we, we suggest you do, but you don't, legally you don't have to, right? So you have that freedom to do it, to, to wear or not wear a mask when you go outside. Now, some people have very strong consciences on this. Some people are looking at all the data out there and they're saying, how could you even think about walking outside without a mask on? And other people are looking at data that's out there and they're saying, we're walking outside. Like the data supports you don't need to wear a mask when you're just walking outside. In terms of Christian freedom, so let's say it's after church, people are gathering in the parking lot, they're going back to their cars and someone who has a very strong conscience is wearing a mask And they look out and they see a Christian brother not wearing a mask. The question becomes, should that Christian brother be wearing a mask? And the answer is, they have Christian liberty. The government has not required it. So this is not a Romans 13, submit to your governing authorities thing at this moment. And and they have total Christian liberty to not wear a mask if they don't want to wear a mask. Now, on the grounds of, if it causes their conscience, the person who's wearing a mask, If they get this, like, if they're finding anger inside their heart and it's like really creating division in the church, what I preached last week would say, put a mask on for the sake of your brother. Like, if you know that wearing a mask and you're going to see your friend walk over here and you know they have a very strong conscience about this issue, look, give up your liberty for a moment to bless your brother. Just put it on, even if you don't fully agree with it, okay? Let's change the situation. So now let's say that The government comes in and says, no, you know what? You have to wear a mask when you're outside. Okay? So now two Christians, one has already had a conscience bound saying, I should be wearing a mask based on the data. The other saying, based on the data I'm seeing, I don't think I need to wear a mask. Right? And then the government comes in and says, everyone's got to wear a mask. Does this person have freedom to not wear a mask outside? Now, the doctrine of Christian liberty says only the word of God can bind your conscience. My answer to it is, yes, he should wear a mask. Why? Is it because the, the government has the ability to bind their conscience? No, it's because the word of God binds their conscience. And the word of God says in Romans 13, one, submit to the governing authorities. And historically, the historical case for um Uh, what what they would, that this category would fit into is on issues of debatable topics, right? If you are not sure, then submit to the governing authorities. And certainly we could, I mean, wherever you fall on this, you might think it's not a debatable topic, but it's it's a debatable topic, right? Whether or not you should be able to walk outside without a mask on, there's people saying different things. But on debatable topics, the Christian just says, look, submit to the governing authorities. Romans 13, 1, that's easy, right? Um, so those are the two. And then then where it really comes to a head uh, is at what point um, is, is there such a thing as civil disobedience? And that's more of a Romans 13 type thing. Like, is there ever a, a place to say, no, like, I'm not going to do what the government tells me to do because it's against my conscience. And that would only be in a situation where what the government's asking is in direct contradiction to uh to the word of God so you would be disobeying God by obeying their their commands but that's a whole separate thing. But I think that kind of shows a little bit of working out Christian liberty in a practical kind of way. What do you guys think? What, what where am I sending you as I'm talking through that? No, it's just interesting that there's not like a clean way to
1: get through these kinds of things. Like even with that that example, it almost feels like uh in any sort of situation where this is going to apply It it feels like there's going to be an an initial tension between people. And then the question is, how do you navigate it? Like once you realize the tension is there, then how do you navigate it? And that's what Paul's given instructions in how to do. And uh, yeah, Hillary, you got anything?
0: Yeah, I just thought that was a really great practical example because in Romans 14, they're talking about food and what's unclean, what's clean and just things that we don't really have to battle much of today. So to really see it played out in a different way and how the Bible doesn't directly address that issue, but how you can use the scripture in different context to come back around to see what the answer would be for Christian liberty. So thank you. That was helpful.
2: Well, you could really make a direct line because if it's a clean mask or a dirty mask, <laughs> it's an unclean mask, right? Then it's like, well, now what do I do? Like if this thing's no, dirty, I put it on... No. <laughs> Totally taking the Bible out of context. Don't do what I just did. That is not good. <laughs> I think that's the hard work. You know, when, when you read scripture, and this is every good Bible student just needs to know this information. When you read the Bible, the first thing you want to do when you read a text is you want to avoid the mistake of saying, what does this mean to me? Like you read it and you're like, okay, what, what, what does it mean to me right away? while I think God honors all Bible reading and uh, that, you know, I I never want to say like, that's the wrong way to read the Bible. Um, When you read the text of the Bible, you want to first ask the question, what did it mean to its original hearers? And and to do that, you you know, there's good resources out there to try to understand if you don't know about clean and unclean foods, like you got to learn a little bit about that to understand the context of what he's writing into. It's not too hard. You don't have to pick up like a, you know, an academic journal this big to learn it. Most basic Bible commentaries will kind of give you a, the general concept to help you understand it. But you first want to know, what was Paul actually communicating to them? And then once you really understand what he meant to them and how they would have heard it and what their expectations would have been, then you you weave it down to a principle. Like, what's the principle he's saying? The principle that kind of crosses all cultures, wherever you are. It's a un, What's the universal principle underneath Paul's idea here? And then, then you do the work of taking that principle into your modern day. Um, it, they, they call it the, prince, in Bible study terms, it's called the principalizing bridge because you're, you're bridging from their culture to ours over one principle. And we've got all these different contexts. Like we're not dealing with clean and unclean food. We're dealing with masks and COVID and quarantines and uh, politics and Black Lives Matter and all this stuff, right? So how do we take the principle... From this culture and bring it over the bridge into our culture. But to do, the only way to do that well is to first really understand what did he mean back here. Then you can begin to take it into our culture and make actual relevant applications. Yeah.
0: Did anything else get cut?
2: Um, I'm sure there was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm scrolling through uh, right now. You know, I think one other thing I want to say the other there's another pass, a few other places in Scripture that are really similar passages to this one. Um, so First Corinthians chapter eight is a very very similar passage. He uses the same language of strong and weak. Um, he uses uh, same ideas of eating, what to eat and what not to eat, and he actually expands it a little bit more in in First Corinthians eight. Let me read to you uh, verses seven and eight from that passage. Very similar theme, similar idea, and then he says this. However. Not all possess this knowledge, speaking of Christian liberty. So he's talking Christian liberty, he says, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as if it was really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is, def- is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now, here's what I think is important. At the beginning of that, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. The, the issue, most of the issues that we would argue about Christian liberty type stuff, uh, it, oftentimes it's a matter of knowledge. And knowledge just takes time to really work into your heart. And, and this is just a very practical thing. When we get in disagreements with people over uh, opinions and, and things like that, things we could argue over, For the other person, very rarely are you going to get an opinion and you're going to say something and the other party is just going to be like, oh, yeah, like you're 100 percent right. I give up the ground I'm standing on. I fully stand on your ground. Like most arguments don't end that way. Or if they do, it's really out of bitterness that the person is conceding ground to you. (laughs) Usually what an argument does is it reveals to people that aren't in the same place and it takes time to to get to a place where you're in more alignment with each other, and so, uh, and that's because it, it's not all possess this knowledge and acquiring knowledge to the place that it actually changes your behavior in your heart. That's a that we need to have a ton of patience with people, and I think patience in the midst of the church right now is the is one of the key virtues that we need to be chasing after. Um, every, I mean, I, I brought up a few of them. And, and, and I think it's almost like a throwaway, not a throwaway term, but like it's almost lost its force to say that we're in the midst of a very divided culture right now. We're divided in everything. And it's really intense division. It's like superheated. Um, and it's in the church as well. But one of the ways you cut that division down, which is what Paul argues for all the time, like have unity among yourselves, is when we commit to having incredible patience with other people. Because it takes a long time to learn and to take that knowledge and work it into the heart. Um, and so patience with people, having like just just committing up front whenever you're going to an argument, like I'm not expecting to have them agree with me by the end of this conversation. I, I'm expected to give them incredible grace and give up my rights. Um, if, if Christians did that, I think the church would be in a much healthier place right now. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just a little bit of what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, right, thanks so
1: much. Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show.
2: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Pastor's Cut. It's actually our last episode of season four. So Trevor, it's been a pleasure working with you again this season. And stay tuned because we will be bringing The Pastor's Cut back for the Advent season for the first time ever.
1: Yeah, yeah, very excited for that, but also very sad about... Uh, some news that is bittersweet. There is an exciting component, but Hillary, this is your last episode on the Pasture's Cut as you have a new and exciting position you're moving into. So it's been great. I've enjoyed it very much and you will be missed greatly. And Advent is ahead. So I hope you all can join us for that. We're looking forward to it.